Well, maybe moms, you've had those thoughts and experiences as you have prepared for the Christmas holidays, and it's so easy with all the work you have to do to be caught up with the presents and the decorations and the food. And all of a sudden, sometimes like that, we're reminded of what Christmas is all about. It's about love. It's about love for our family. But primarily, it's about love that Jesus Christ showed us, that God showed us through Jesus Christ. In fact, I want you to look at our memory verse uh, for December, John 1, 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's the message of Christmas, that God Himself became one of us, and He dwelled among us. He experienced our life, and then He gave His life in order that we might live. I would encourage you to continue to work on the verses this year. They're in the back of your message notes. You can take a look there and uh, hope that you've worked on How many have memorized at least half of the memory verses we've had this year at Springbrook? All right. Well, good job. Excellent. Uh, I encourage you to continue to work on those and make memorization a regular part of uh, your life. Well, I was looking on the Internet, uh, Googling nativity scenes, and I came across a very strange classified advertisement. Somebody took a picture of it. You see a picture here. Outdoor nativity scene. No Mary, Joseph, or Jesus. Only $100. Huh? What a bargain. <laughs> but there's something very critical missing, no doubt. Let's uh, play a game called, What's Wrong With This Picture? Look at this next picture, and we see a Weeble uh, Christmas scene. And uh, what's wrong with this picture? They're so cute, and they fit so nicely. But there's something wrong with that picture, and you can just think to yourself what might be wrong. Let's look at another picture. There are so many things wrong with this nativity scene. I can't even begin. Uh, you got the wrong background. I don't know who those people are in the middle. And you have underdeveloped shepherds and overdeveloped wise men. And I think that's the baby Jesus leaning against the manger there, playing with the hay. I'm not sure. <laughs> but there's still something very significantly wrong with that picture. Now let me show you something that's pretty accurate. You have Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus, and you have a shepherd or another shepherd. You see his hands there. This is a very good picture of the nativity because there are no wise men all right I want to let you know that there were no wise men at the nativity many people believe that the wise men were there it's been propagated through nativity scenes and songs like we sung we three kings <laughs> type of thing other misconceptions about the wise men uh, but they weren't there they arrived at a later time as we're going to study this morning uh, so I've been on a 20-year mission and i've grown to call it the wise men relocation project and that is the goal of removing all wise men from all nativity scenes uh, because it's not historically historically that is accurate and we want to again communicate the truth especially at christmas but we'll talk about that a little later let's look at our passage today matthew chapter 2 verse 1 through 11 open your bibles with me and turn to matthew chapter 2 and let's take a look at the story of the wise men. 
After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Now notice it says, after Jesus was born, that's when they went to Jerusalem. So again, they didn't go to the Tivity. They came to Bethlehem at a later time. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod. Now, King Herod was a twisted individual. We'll talk about him in a moment. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, what was a magi? That really is the original word, magi. That's not a translation or anything. They were magi. The word magician comes from magi. What were magi? Well, first of all, uh, they were the priestly tribe of the Corinthians. The Corinthians. Now, you had the Roman Empire in the west, and you had the Eastern Empire, which was the Corinthian Empire. We don't hear much about that empire, but it was in the east. The Asian countries... Uh, the Orient, and that's where these Magi lived. And these Magi had a long, long history. They were scholars. They were wise men. Kings consulted them. They were political leaders. They were scholars. Uh, they were kingmakers. If you wanted to be a king in that particular empire, you had to be mentored by a Magi, and then you needed to be approved by the Magi. You could not become a king unless the magi gave the go-ahead so they're a very very powerful people we go to the book of daniel and we learn that daniel and his friends uh, when they were taken into captivity became part of the babylonian leadership development team and uh, they really did well because god was blessing them and daniel interpreted king nebuchadnezzar's dream and that even gave him more fame and eventually, he became the chief of the Magi. He was in charge of all of the Magi. And you can imagine that he is going to teach them the Scriptures. He's going to teach them the prophecies about Jesus Christ, the Messiah who was to come. So Daniel had a long tenure of teaching the Scriptures to the Magi. And the Magi regularly studied the Scriptures along with all the other books uh, that they had sacred books, but they knew the scriptures. They knew this particular verse in Numbers twenty-four seventeen. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. So they knew this verse. They knew that a star would be the sign that would point them to Jesus Christ. Now, this is very interesting to the Magi because one of their hobbies was astronomy and astrology and sorcery and divination. You say, well, how do you put astronomy and astrology together? Well, there was no line between them back in that day, between science and superstition. Uh, so they kind of dabbled in everything. And they were always watching the skies and they knew this verse. So in the back of their minds, they were always thinking, okay, you know, when's that star going to appear now? Daniel taught them this 500 years before. 500 years, so it was passed down through the generations. Well, they saw the star in the west. In the passage it says the star in the east, but they were in the east looking at the star in the west. And that's what caused them to move forward, to seek out the child, the Christ child. Well, we move on. 
Matthew 2, 1 through 2, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? You see, they saw the star in the west, but then, in a sense, it disappeared, I think. It's not like they actually followed the star step by step. They just knew that it was in the east, most likely in that Jerusalem area. So that's exactly where they went. They went to Jerusalem and said, hey, where's the one who was born the king of Jews? We saw a star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, I can imagine people wondering, what are you talking about? (laughs) What are you talking about, this child? Uh, uh, They were just kind of, who are these guys and why have they come? Uh, to our place. So that's the amazing thing about it. The, fir- the people who first uh, were directed, really kind of in an indirect way, they were led by the star because they had read the scriptures, were Gentiles and not Jews. I mean, the shepherds were told directly, hey, this is the Messiah. And other people were told directly that. But these were the first Gentiles that came and said, hey, we want to meet this child. We want to worship him. So it goes on that they came into Jerusalem. Uh, and I think it's very interesting uh, what they had to do to get there. Again, they were in the east. So some people estimate anywhere from seven to 800 to 900 miles they had to travel to find Jesus Christ. Now, that's a long journey. And I got to remember uh, they were very important people. And again, as we sang, we three kings, well... There's two things wrong with three, three, three kings. Number one, we're not sure there were three of them because the Bible doesn't tell us. There could have been two, there could have been three, there could have been ten, we're not sure. There were three gifts, and that's why people assume that there were three kings. Now, they weren't kings either. They were king makers, right? They empowered kings. So we're not sure if there were three of them, and we're not sure, uh, we're sure that they were not kings. So, they made this journey. And they had to make preparations for this journey because they brought this huge entourage with them because they were important people and most likely were riding Persian uh, horses. And they traveled with maybe up to a 1,000 soldiers. So it took probably a couple months just to get ready for the journey, and then they had to go on the journey. We don't know how long it took them. Some people say six months. Some people say a year. Now, we know at least within a two-year period, as we'll see here in a moment. But imagine how they sacrificed to come and worship the Christ child, the time and the energy and the money they invested. I just want to take a moment to talk about how we can be inspired by the wise men in our worship. Look at how they committed themselves. There's many different ways we worship. We worship here corporately as a body on the weekends. We worship when we sit down and we pray and when we sing along with worship music on our iPod or when we live. Our whole life is a worship service. But let me talk just about this particular time when we come together, our corporate worship. This is very important. God says we need to be here. You know how he laid out creation, right? A day for the Sabbath, and he told Israelites to honor the Sabbath and a part of them honoring the Sabbath was gathering together for worship. And we see the Christians in the New Testament doing the same thing. In fact, the book of Hebrews, the writer says, let us not, let us not give up, let us 
give, uh, let us continue to meet together and not get into the habit of not meeting uh, together. Uh, again, even back in that day, there was a tendency to kind of get away uh, from coming together on a weekly basis uh, with other believers. And that certainly can be our tendency uh, today. Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir here. <laughs> you are the diehards, right? That are willing to drive through this wild weather to come and worship together. And I really want to encourage you in that and uh, commend you uh, for your commitment to worship. Because if you're here today, you're most likely the person that goes to church every week. It's part of who you are. It's your commitment. It's something you do no matter whether you feel like it or you don't feel like it, because you know that you have a divine appointment with God. God has asked you to be here, not for your benefit, but for His benefit. Do you realize you come for God's benefit and not your benefit? So many people say, well, I didn't meet my needs. Well, it really doesn't matter if it met your needs or not, because it's not about your needs. It's about what God has asked you to do, to come and glorify Him. That's what you're doing today. You have a divine appointment uh, with God on a weekly basis. And we need to be very serious about fulfilling that divine appointment. Now, certainly on a day like today, I can understand there are probably some people who didn't show up because they were uh, fearful of traveling. And that certainly is understandable uh, with the weather out there. But I can imagine there are some people that didn't come to our church or other churches because it was too much of a hassle. It was just, oh, it's easier to stay inside and get the kids ready and things of that nature. And, well, that's not a good excuse not to fulfill your divine appointment with God. When the weather's bad or when the weather's good. Many times people don't fulfill their divine appointment with God because the weather's so nice and there's so many wonderful things to do and I've got to catch up with things in the yard. That's not a good excuse. Or I've got too, too many things to do. I need this weekend to catch up with stuff. Sometimes I'll talk with people and they haven't been to church in a long time and say, hey, we've missed you at Springbrook. And they'll say, well, life has just been crazy. And i say, well, I hope to see you this Sunday. <laughs> Tell me, really, why aren't you coming? <laughs> you know, I mean, my life is crazy too, but I'm there every week and obviously I'm compensated for it as your pastor. Uh, but uh, if I were not a pastor, I still would be here every week as a Christ follower because I have a divine appointment with God. Some people say, well, you know, we've got kids' activities. You know, the sporting activities take place on the weekends. I'll have people who are gone for a whole season and say, we're back, the soccer season is over. And I feel like saying, so you're saying that your kids are more important than God? Is that what you're communicating to your kids? They're taking that into their value system that sports are more important than God? You're sending your kids the wrong message, Okay. You need to seriously think about that. You need to make sure your kids are in church every week. We even have a Saturday night service, which most churches don't have, that you can take advantage of if you have sporting events on Sunday. But I tell you what, when I was a kid, we were always in church. We're always in church. Now, just because you're in church doesn't make you Christian, doesn't make you spiritual, but it certainly helps and helping you move in that particular direction. Some people don't come to church because there's a Bears game on at noon, and they want to see the pregame and all that kind of stuff. Well, tell me, is that more important than a divine appointment with God? What, is, what does God think about that when you stay home for the Bears? I don't think He's happy. Friends, we need to take this very, very seriously. I'm just talking to family members here at Springbrook. 
if you're a guest here or if you go to another church, well, that's where your commitment needs to be. But we need to make it a priority and say, God, the most important thing I do on my Sabbath, on my weekend, is that I am in church. Not for Pastor Dan, not for other people, but for you. Because you want me there. And you want to work in my life. And I've come to worship you. All right? It's a bit of a loving challenge there. Okay. And again, I'm preaching to the choir. <laughs> so pass it on to somebody, okay? <laughs> All right. Well, let's continue here. Uh, Matthew chapter 2, verse 3. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Well, King Herod, <laughs> he was quite a character. He was an excellent leader. He was a very aggressive leader, ambitious. In 40 B.C., he went to Rome and he said, listen, there is that area out there called Palestine and we're not getting any money uh, from there. I'd like to go out and establish a little bit of the Roman Empire out there and I'll send tax money back to you. So it took him three years, but finally he convinced him. And so he came back to Palestine with an army and uh, he settled the place. It was run by guerrillas and so Rome occupied it and uh, they started to tax people. But he did a lot of good things. He built a temple for the Jews. They hadn't had that in a while since it was uh, destroyed uh, by the Babylonians. Uh, he built them a temple, Herod's Temple. Uh, he built a racetrack called a Hippodrome. Uh, he built uh, Masada. Remember Masada, the impregnable uh, uh, area there uh, that we learn about in history. Uh, so he did a lot of great things. He was great on welfare. He fed the people. He imported clothes for the people. He was a good politician. But the one weakness that Herod had is that he was extremely jealous. He really was a madman. He would kill people left and right in order to make sure that he was secure, that his position as king of the Jews uh, was not going to be threatened in any way. Uh, he wiped out a whole family, uh, Hasmoneans, who were descendants of the Maccabeans, the Maccabeans had revolted against the occupying force at that time, so he thought, well, it must be in their blood, so I'll wipe these people out as well. He took out his mother-in-law. He took out three of his children because they might take over his throne. And then he killed his wife. And that was just a short list. There's so much information out there about Herod and what a monster uh, he was. In fact, the one thing that really defines him is that when he died, he knew nobody would mourn for him in Jerusalem so he had different distinguished citizens arrested on trumped-up charges so that the moment he died, they would be executed as well. So there would be mourning in Jerusalem. Not for him, but there would at least be mourning. That's how sick this man was. So you put that all in context. You have the Magi showing up, and these are leaders from the Parinthians, and the Roman Empire and the Parinthians had some tension going on, and... The no-man's land really was that area of Palestine, and that's where the battles took place. So here you have his enemy coming, and they're looking for a king. <laughs> so you've got a lot of things going on there, right? He's threatened because it's his enemy, and on top of that, they're looking for a king. And he's the king of the Jews. So he is disturbed. He's agitated, and all Jerusalem with him. Well, they knew Herod, and they knew if he was angry, if he was upset, that people were going to die, and it might be them. So they were upset about this as well. Well, we look at verse 4. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. So what did he do? 
He got together the leaders, the chief priests who were leaders over all the priests, and the teachers, the scribes, the people who knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. They'd memorized it. And he asked them where the Christ is to be born. And it sounds like this is such a difficult question. Who will know this mystery answer? Well, everybody knew what the answer was. It was right in the Scriptures. And they responded in this way in verse 5. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. And this, with the context of all the other scriptures in the Old Testament, this is the Messiah. And every child knew this, where the Messiah was going to be born. This is a very simple answer. Because you see, this is a... He's quoting from Micah, Micah 5, 2. It says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrath, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So they basically were saying, well, Micah said this, and everybody else knows that Micah uh, said that, that Christ would come out of Bethlehem. Well, we move on. Then Herod called the Magi secretly, because he was hatching a plan and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. Now, why did he want to know the exact time? Well, he wanted to know the age of this child. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I, too, may go and worship him. Now, did he really want to go and worship him? No, he wanted to kill him, right? In fact... When the wise men were warned by God, as we'll see in a moment, they went a different way. They didn't go back to Herod. So Herod didn't know who this child was. So what he did was he ordered the slaughter of all male children up until the age of two. Imagine how devastating that would be. This is the kind of monster he was. So that kind of gives us the context in terms of when the wise men told, okay, we saw the star at this point. So for some reason, in order to be safe, Herod said, okay, I'll take out every child, a male child, up until the age of two, and that should cover the time. So we know there was a, a time frame from when they saw the star and when they got to Jerusalem. So six months, a year, we're not sure. But again, it was a, a period after when Jesus Christ was born. So that's his plan. Well, we move on to verse 9. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, And the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Now, this is why I believe with this kind of glory, again, because the star came down and guided them directly to the house where Jesus Christ was living. And they were overjoyed. That's the nature of worship. It's not always joyful to worship. Sometimes you're reflective. Sometimes you're repentant. But I tell you what, that's a big part of worship, being filled with joy that we are children of God and that we can glean insights from His Word and the Holy Spirit can empower us. Well, we move on to verse 11. It says, On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with the gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. So, it says, on coming to the house, not the stable, 
but the house. Now, let me tell you a little more about my Wiseman relocation project, what I'd like you to do to help me in this particular area. Uh, now, how many have the Wiseman in the nativity scene right now? All right, well, that's your first step. You need to go home and you need to take the Wiseman away from the nativity scene, no matter how painful it might be artistically to remove them from that beautiful nativity scene that you have bought and move them as far as you think. That would be six months or a year. All right? And then what you do is you take out a little note card, and it can be decorative, whatever you want to do with it, uh, and say, arrived one year later. So when people come to your house for the holiday season and the wise men are on the grill outside, all right, and they say, what are the wise men doing out there? And then you have this great opportunity to tell them about the wise men, but also to tell them how they came to worship the Lord. You can go all kinds of different directions in being a witness at that particular time. So this is a witnessing tool as well when we're talking about the wise men. So you need to move the wise men. Now, it's not enough just to do that because we have a lot of people that we have to teach this uh, thing too, uh, this uh, uh, teaching about the wise men. Uh, I would encourage you to make several cards, and as you go into other people's homes, your relatives, your friends, and when you see their nativity scene, if they have the wise men, move them. Now, you've got to be careful about this because people just get a little nervous when you start touching their stuff. So, wait till the host goes to the bathroom, all right? And then move the wise men, and then get out of the house, <laughs> maybe as you leave, and explain to them later uh, why uh, you might have done that. Uh, when you're driving down the street and you see nativity scenes and the wise men are in the nativity scenes, pull over, throw the wise men behind a bush and speed away. Okay? These are the type of tactical moves we need to make if we really are going to make a difference. And I, I, I feel that I have to notch, uh, ratchet it up a little bit. Uh, so I'd like a webmaster for my wise men website and uh, I need a Facebook page. And we need to go viral with this thing, okay? We need to let people know what uh, history really says about the wise men. All right, very good. Well, we continue on here. On coming to the house, oh, I'm sorry, let's go back. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Again, think about this. Mary and Joseph and Jesus living in Bethlehem. And again, nobody really knows that much about Jesus Christ being the Messiah. Very few people know, and even if they told people, they wouldn't believe it. So they didn't have a lot of support in taking care of this child and people believing them. Probably people made, made a lot of fun of them. And all of a sudden, this small little town is invaded by this entourage of soldiers and who knows what else that came along with these wise men. And these very important-looking men go into this small house and they bow down to the king. Can you imagine what an encouragement that must have been to Mary and Joseph, assuring them that, yeah, they're on the right track, they're doing the right thing, Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Then they gave gifts, wonderful gifts, gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. So they gave gifts of gold. Gold was always big and is still big, especially these days. Solomon just covered his life with gold. Uh, gold is a sign of royalty. And so, in a sense, these gifts have symbolic meaning as well. In the sense that Jesus Christ was the king. And so they gave him gold. 
Then they gave him myrrh. And myrrh was a type of perfume as well as incense. And they got myrrh uh, from these Arabian trees. What they do is they make an incision in a certain Arabian tree, and they would, uh, again, uh, let the juice flow uh, from it. And it was kind of like a white liquid, and that that would be the myrrh. It's very expensive, you know, shipped in from Arabia. And they used this, uh, again, to smell good, as well as they use it a lot in burial. And, of course, we see that Jesus Christ had myrrh as a part of his burial. And so, therefore, this signified the humanity of Jesus Christ and his death for us. And finally, incense was from another tree in Arabia. And this was used many times in offerings at the temple. And so this signified Jesus Christ's deity. So we've got gold signifying his royalty. We've got myrrh signifying his humanity. And then we have incense signifying his deity. These were wonderful gifts that the wise men brought. And also God used them for a very practical purpose because we know that Herod had ordered the slaughter of all the male children up to age two. And so Mary and Joseph had to get out of there. So they fled to Egypt. They were led there in a dream. And they used, I believe, the gold and the frankincense and myrrh. And they traded it uh, for other resources that they needed. In Matthew 2.11, it says, And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So God warned them, don't tell Herod where the Christ child is. Now we think about the wise men and their gift of worship. And let's talk a little more about corporate worship and the importance of preparing your hearts for worship and how you just come to a worship service. You should be preparing your heart the day before and the day of and say, Lord, just speak to me through your time of worship. Help me to be fully engaged. And how do you be fully engaged in a worship service? Well, the first thing is you show up on time, right? Now, again, today doesn't count. <laughs> a little more difficult. Uh, but it's so important uh, that we be here on time. Let's say that you're having a job interview. Would you be on time to a job interview? Wouldn't that be embarrassing to be late to a job interview? I mean, why even show up, <laughs> right, if you're going to be late to a job interview? Well, friends, what's more important? And you're saying, well, a worship service isn't the same thing. Well, then you need to change how you think about worship services, okay? This is a time when you have a divine appointment with God. And churches struggle with this. We struggle with it. And so I would encourage you to say, okay, we're going to change our ways here. And we're going to get there 10 minutes early. And then maybe we'll be there on time. You know how that works, right? <laughs> That's how our family works sometimes. Uh, but be here on time because when you're here on time, you're respecting God. You're respecting other people, right? Because when other people are here on time and they're, you know, singing along, uh, it's great to have the whole gang here. I mean, I wish that at 9 o'clock we had everybody in a service that we typically uh, have uh, at the end of the service because we'd have much richer worship because there'd be many more voices and many more people involved. And so when you get here on time, you respect God and you respect uh, other people as well as God might want to speak to you in that first 10 minutes. And if you're not there, uh, we can't speak to you. So that's an important part of worship. Then I encourage you to engage in the singing, to engage in worship. What I want to challenge you to do is to sing a little louder than you sung in the past. <laughs> I know some people are very uh, insecure about their voices, but God says, hey, make a joyful noise. doesn't matter what it sounds like. But again, sing out a little more than you ha have 
uh, in the past. And I also encourage you uh, to think about the words. Sometimes we just sing a song and don't think about the words. Well, really think about the words, and maybe you'll have to stop singing because it really doesn't reflect your heart at that point. But think about the words as you sing. Pray the words uh, to the Lord. Really, again, become engaged in worship. And move your body when you worship. Learn how to lift your hands. Why don't you stand up for a moment? And we're going to do a little bit of worship practice here. All right? We'll see if you guys can do this. Uh, I've watched you guys. I'm not sure if some of you can raise your hands, if it's possible. So I just want to make sure you can do this. All right? So what I want you to do is just raise your hands right about shoulder level. Okay, Not shoulder level, but uh, waist level. Okay? Very good. Everybody can do that. That's good, good news to me. All right? And, uh, yeah, you got your hands open. It says that you're ready to receive uh, from the Lord. And now let's say you really get excited and you lift your hands up to your shoulders. Okay, all right. Now you're really excited about what uh, you're singing about. And let's say you're just, you're just totally into it. Full extension. All right. Now let's see how long we can hold that. No, just kidding. All right, hands down. You may be seated. Thank you very much. All right, you can do it. Now, I know there's different comfort levels and you've been raised in different traditions and things of that nature, but I would encourage you to grow some in this area. We need to grow as a church uh, being, uh, again, uh, more uh, demonstrative in our worship. So during the very last song, uh, I want you to to practice that, to raise your hands as much as you can get them up all right, uh, to the Lord. And I'll tell you what, guys, just because you raise your hand does not mean you're spiritual. The person who's raising their hand is not more spiritual than the person who's not. But it's not to compare yourself to other people. It's basically just another way to fully engage in worship and to really focus upon him. You're not worried about what other people are doing. God is concerned about what you're doing. God is concerned about where your heart is. And sometimes that doesn't mean you raise your hands again. You know, follow the Lord's lead. But I want to let you know that you have permission to raise your hands here. Okay, it's okay to do. All right, I'm blocking somebody here. <laughs> no, you're not. They can see the screen. <laughs> All right, another way that we worship is through giving. We talked about this several weeks ago, the importance of giving uh, to the Lord. And I just want to highlight here, it's been three weeks since I talked uh, about our year-end giving, and you have a, a yellow insert that talks about that here uh, in your program. But again, we're giving the two different projects this year. Uh, we're hoping uh, to have $30,000 given uh, to these projects, uh, 15000 for one and 15000 for another, or 50% of whatever uh, comes in. The first is for our Project Belize. This is Belize, the red country south of Mexico that we visited, and we support the missionaries there, uh, John and Mel Bjorn. And they just have a real heart for the Lord. Three different projects. We see in this picture the first project. This is hurricane damage uh, that happened in October. We want to help them put their base uh, back together. The second project is seen in this picture. Uh, when young children, young boys come to the Lord, uh, they're many times uh, persecuted. They're bullied uh, for their faith. Uh, the older guys uh, just make life tough for them. So we want to help support a Christian boys' home where they can get away uh, from the village. They can live on the base and be discipled and strengthened. So some of it will go toward that. And the third area is a van. They need a van to be replaced. Uh, their van's not in good shape. So this van will get the villagers around as well as the short-term missionary people that come in as well as the missionaries. Uh, so those are the three projects. The second project that we'll work on is our home makeover. 
And what we want to do is make our facility more warm. We want to warm it up. We want to make it a welcoming environment, a fun environment uh, for kids. And some people might say, well, we don't need that. Well, that's true. You might not need that. But we're talking about people who are coming here who don't know the Lord. This is an evangelism project. We want them to come in and feel like it's a warm place. So we look at our atrium, and uh, this is something we could do is add some sofas or some uh, cafe tables. We're not quite sure yet. Uh, Or uh, we can add a welcome center. So as people come in right away, they can be welcomed and made to feel uh, comfortable. Uh, This is a picture of our children's area, and what we can do with this is we can add some color uh, through different murals, uh, put some paint on the walls. Uh, We can add some different flooring, uh, things on the walls, different lighting, another illustration of something like that. But again, just to make it an inviting, fun place to be, more equipment for the kids, things like that. So again, those are our two projects, and I would ask you to prayerfully consider what God would have you to give beyond your regular giving. Uh, this season. Uh, We've raised $4,000 so far. Uh, 33 families have given, and the offering goes through the end of the year. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the time that you've given us to learn more about the wise men, the magi. Thank you for their heart for worship, and I pray that we would be inspired by that to worship more ourselves, more intently, with a real heart uh, for you. Lord, thank you for the privilege we have to give to this year-end offering, and I pray that we'd all give generously and that we would see these projects uh, fully funded. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, If we could have our ushers come forward at this time. I want to thank you for your generosity this year. We've had three different initiatives that we've been working with. Uh, We had 130 Thanksgiving meals given uh, by our people. And you'll see pictures of that in a moment during this next song. Uh, We had over 130 Christmas boxes, Operation Christmas Child. And those are boxes that are sent over uh, to children all over the world. And then on top of that, we're giving to 133 different children who has a parent incarcerated. That's going to happen next Sunday. And we did some rough estimating, and we figured that the people at Springbrook have given over $13,000 to Compassion Ministries this season. Let's give the Lord a hand for how he's using us. Isn't that wonderful to see God at work? So I want you to listen carefully to this song, because it talks about reaching out the needy people, not just during this season, but throughout the year, showing the love of Christ. 